Well, please turn in your Bible to Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11. We'll be looking at verses 20 through 22 in Hebrews 11. And if you need a Bible so you can follow along, then Len and Jean have Bibles. So get their attention and they'll get one to you. And it's marked in that very spot of Hebrews 11. So you can just turn to where it's marked. I recently read a book called The Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor. It's a biography about, as the title suggests, just an ordinary, small-town, no-name pastor. It's not an autobiography. He didn't write it about himself. It's written by another about this pastor. He served in the province of Quebec in Canada from the 1930s to the 70s. And he spoke at no major conferences. He wrote no great work. And he never pastored even a mid-sized church by our standards. This man, for all the years he labored, never pastored a church of more than 50 people. And yet it's clear from the book that he was an exceptional man. He was a faithful husband, a devoted father. He was a dogged servant of the church, a passionate witness for Christ. He had the same kind of struggles that all of us have, and including pastors. He experienced church upheaval, some family turmoil. He had the onset of Alzheimer's disease for his wife. And he grappled with those kinds of difficulties all of his life. And yet it's clear from the book that he never walked away from the narrow path of following Christ. Though obstacles were in the way, and those obstacles would land some tough blows, he would walk on. He led tiny churches when no one else had eyes for the unchurched that were located in the areas where he ministered. He knocked on thousands of doors when policemen literally harassed him for doing so. He exhorted young pastors when there were no major seminaries or internship programs around to prepare men for ministry. His life was one of passionate, almost desperately active faith. And though the results of his ministry are not startling in terms of their numerical count, they are extraordinary nonetheless. Now I'll tell you in a bit about this pa- a bit more about this pastor at the end of the message. But for right now, understand that this profile is the normal life of faith. Because remember this, friends, faith believes what it cannot see. And it believes it so intensely, so passionately, that though we cannot see the fruit of what faith requires, it happily soldiers on because it's certain, it's absolutely certain, according to verse 1 of Hebrews 11, it's certain of what it cannot see. And the truth is, God often calls us to labor for what we cannot see, And sometimes God calls us to labor in places and at times such that we labor in spite of what we can see. And that's why, from God's perspective, 
Success for his servants is never defined, never defined, in terms of results. We don't control the results. He does. And he does so in his time. Things may not be what we want when we want. But if we believe they will become what God wants and when he wants, then we will believe and do what he says. We will trust and we will obey. We saw this in an amazing way last week. From verses 17 through 19 of Hebrews 11, and the story of Abraham's extreme obedience to God when he was willing to offer his son Isaac. You know the story. Many of you were here last week as we went through it. Today we're going to see three men who followed Abraham. And their lives could fairly be called train wrecks. But nevertheless, their faith caused them to take obedient action in the present because they were convinced that they were part of something much larger, which would be completed after they were gone. And it turns out, long after they were gone. Despite the fact that they could not see the result, they believed that that result would come. And so they acted accordingly. Notice verse 20 of Hebrews 11. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt, and he gave instructions about his, his bones. These are three men, three important men in the storyline of the Bible who fall within the ancestry of Abraham. They fall in the line of Abraham, and they are beneficiaries of the promise made to Abraham. And you all remember that promise that goes back to Genesis chapter 12 in your Bible, verses 1 through 3. And God says to Abraham, I am going to make of you a great nation. And your seed is going to be as numerous as the stars of the sky. You will not be able to count them. And I'm going to give you a land as well for you to dwell in that will be for you and those who come after you. And so God makes this promise to Abraham, and it's in turn a promise to those who come after him. To his promised son Isaac, and to Isaac's son Jacob, and to Jacob's sons, including Joseph. But Abraham dies without seeing that fulfilled. And so did Isaac, so did Jacob, and so did Joseph. Look at verse 13. All of these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. You see that they had eyes of faith. They were able to see what wasn't there yet. They were certain of what they could not see, according to verse 1. And because they were certain that what they could not see 
was going to come to pass because of the word of God, because of the promise of God. They therefore in the present acted by faith. Who are these people? Well, a number of people that we've seen already prior to verse 13 in Hebrews 11. We've seen Abel and we've seen Enoch and we've seen Noah. But we also have seen in verses 8 and 9 are mentioned Abraham. And there are mentioned Isaac and Jacob. And now they are focused upon in verses 20 through 22, including Joseph as well. What did Isaac and Jacob and Joseph do? that showed that they believed what they could not see. That they trusted God for the results, and they simply were going to do what God said. What did they do? Well, you might think these were really extraordinary, terrific guys. I mean, after all, last week we looked at Abraham. And Abraham had grown in faith to the point that he was willing to do something that I dare say none of us, if we were being honest, including myself, would be able to honestly say, I could do what Abraham did. Take my son on a mountain, pull the knife, ready to do what God had commanded of him. But you see, Abraham did not arrive at that point overnight. And Abraham had many struggles. And Isaac and Jacob and Joseph had many struggles as well. I'd like to remind you of those. Because as you read these names in Hebrews 11, what we call faith's hall of fame, you can sometimes come away thinking these people are so extraordinary. And I look at the life of Abraham and he's willing to do this outrageously obedient thing before God that I can't even fathom. So how can these be examples for me? So let me remind you a bit about the lives of these four patriarchs who are mentioned over and over again in the Old Testament as participants in the marvelous plan that God has for his people. I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob and of Joseph. Why these guys? They must really be terrific, right? Well, remember where Abraham came from? You could call it the wrong side of the tracks. Ur of the Chaldees, a pagan city. He was a stone worshiper, as were his ancestors. God did not call Abraham because of anything special about Abraham. God called Abraham because God was going to do something special in and through Abraham. It was not about Abraham. It was about God's plan. And so at the very beginning, it's not about Abraham, anything within him. Just as it's not with you or with me. And then you remember the career of Abraham? It includes Abraham going to Egypt. Never a good idea. But he goes to Egypt. And when he goes to Egypt, the men there see that his wife, Sarah, is very beautiful. And Abraham becomes very concerned about this. Now you might think that he's so chivalrous that he is concerned about her and her safety. But it turns out as you read the story in chapter 12 of Genesis, he's not, he's not just concerned about her. In fact, he's not really concerned about her as much as he's concerned about his own safety. What's he tell her to do? Tell these men that you are my sister. So that if they want to have their way with you, 
they won't kill me if they know I'm your husband. So don't let them think you're married. I'm not terribly concerned, it appears, about what happens to you. That's Abraham. Okay, it's early on. He was a stone worshiper. He was from the wrong side of the tracks, as I said. But it happened again in Genesis chapter 20. He did precisely the same thing. He was willing to give up his wife for his own sake. Father Abraham, the father of the faithful. And then we come to the three men we read about in chapters 20 through 20, in verses 20 through 22, Isaac, his chosen son. And you all remember the story of Isaac. So bear with me as I just remind you. The Bible tells us in Genesis beginning in chapter 25 of the story of, of Isaac. And Isaac's wife, Rebekah, like his mother before, had difficulty in conception. She was able to conceive ultimately. We know she had twin sons, Jacob and Esau. And we'll talk about those twin sons in just a bit, but not a whole lot is said about Isaac other than this, that he goes to a town called Gerar, which is on the border of, of all places, Egypt. And the truth is he's hanging out in places he should not be, but he decides to settle there, and lo and behold, he experiences the same thing with Rebekah that Abraham experienced with Sarah. The men looked upon her and saw that she was very beautiful. And Isaac comes up with a plan. Tell them you're my sister. Where did he get that idea, I wonder? These are really terrific guys. Abraham and Isaac. And then you have the twins, Jacob and Esau. The Bible tells us that when they came out of the womb, that Esau came out first, so he is the firstborn then technically, and he's entitled to the birthright of the firstborn. And the Bible tells us that as the twins are emerging from the womb, that Jacob is grabbing onto the heel of his older brother, Esau. And it's written in such a way as to indicate they've been duking it out in the womb. And he's grasping onto his heel on the way out. So it starts with some ominous overtones. And then those ominous overtones only increase as we move forward. Jacob is in, excuse me, Esau is entitled to the birthright that would come from their father Isaac. But you remember the story. Jacob concocted a plan to deceive his father. And he deceived his father such that Isaac placed the, the blessing of the birthright upon Jacob rather than upon on Esau. And so here we have Jacob, Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob's very name means deceiver or supplanter. There are many other episodes that show the kind of character that Jacob had. We don't need to say much about Esau. Esau is called in the Bible a, a brutish man, an earthy man. He was, a, he was physically a, a very hairy man, a man that was 
almost like a wild beast and loved to be out with the wild beast and kill the wild beast. And in fact, there's indication that his father Isaac favored him in some ways because of that. He liked meat. And this guy was able to bring home the bacon. Not the bacon. They're Jewish. But he was able to... But he was able to bring home the meat. So you have Abraham. You have Isaac. You have Jacob. And then you have Joseph. And you remember the story of Joseph. And Joseph is sold into slavery by his treacherous brothers. His deceiving and scheming brothers. And where do you think those brothers learned their deceitfulness and their scheming? Just as Isaac learned from Abraham, Jacob learned from Isaac, and these boys learned from from their father Jacob. But he's sold into slavery, and they assume that he's he's going to be killed. They leave him to be killed by wild beasts. He ultimately ends up in slavery in in Egypt. And we know from Genesis chapter 37 to Genesis chapter 50, all about the story of, of Joseph and how God in his sovereign providence caused this man to rise to prominence in Egypt and to become an official in Pharaoh's household. And God moves in his world as he always does to bring those boys back to Egypt years later. They assume Joseph's dead. They have to come before Joseph. They don't even know it's him in order to get food. Because there's a famine back in their land. And Joseph reveals his identity to them. They're sure he's going to arrest them, perhaps kill them. And famously in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20, Joseph says, You intended this for evil, but God intended it for good. That's these guys. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Now, I go through all of that for this reason. Friends, as we look at the life of faith and we look at our own struggles and our own failures and we read in Scripture, in something like Hebrews 11, Faith's Hall of Fame, it is very easy for all of us to say, I'm not qualified to be numbered among the faithful. The truth of the matter is you are not, but neither are they, and neither were they. It is because God is faithful in the lives of his people, that any fruit is produced in any of our lives. And I want you to see, if you'll take a look at the outline then that we provided, that the faith of Isaac and Jacob and Joseph teaches us some things. In verses 20, 21, and 22, each of these is commended By faith, Isaac. By faith, Jacob. By faith, Joseph. So they had faith. Faith means belief. They did believe. But what is it that these guys believed? How are they qualified to be numbered among the faithful with lives and character like have just been described? Let's look at what we can learn. God's love allowed them and allows us to participate in his plan. You see, friends, think about this. God is doing something grand and glorious in his his world. He has revealed, he has made known in Scripture what his plan is. He has told us at the end of the book how it's all going to be consummated, how it's all going to turn out. And in between God's creation and God's consummation, 
there's them and there's us. And God is moving inexorably toward the fulfillment of his plan. But in between, he, he lovingly allows us to participate in that plan. He let these guys participate in his plan. And they knew that they were participating in that plan. And that caused them, by faith, to do commendable things. Now let me show that to you in verses 20 through 22. I want you to notice something in common with all three of these. Verse verse 20. By faith Isaac blessed Jacob, and later, by the way, he blessed Esau as well, in regard to their future. The Bible tells us that this took place when Isaac was advanced in years and did not know how much longer he would live. He was at the end of his life. And at the end of his life, notice this, believing God's promise of a future for his people. Believing God's original promise to Father Abraham that I'm going to make a great people of you and give you a land. Believing that, he blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. How did he know they had a future? Because he believed the promise that God had given to Abraham. Notice verse 21. By faith, Jacob. And notice the point in his life when he was dying. He blessed each of Joseph's sons. And he worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. He's, He's old enough, he's dying, he's weak enough that he needs to be supported by his staff. But this weakened elderly man delivers this blessing to his grandchildren because he believes that they have a future, a future that was promised to Father Abraham. And then notice Joseph, by faith Joseph. When, at what point in his life did he demonstrate this faith? When his end was near. He spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt. Now, do you remember the timeline, friends? This is all in the book of Genesis. The book of Exodus, that is so named because it records the exit from Egypt, it hasn't happened. But he knows it's going to happen. How does he know it's going to happen? Because God has promised, I'm going to make you a great nation and I'm going to give you a land and a people. I don't know when it's going to happen, but Joseph believes by faith. When his end was near, he spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt. And then he gave instructions about his bones. He was like an early Martin Luther King. I may not get there with you. But I know we're going to go to the promised land. And because we are going to go to the promised land, I want my bones to go with you. And he gave instructions about them actually transporting his bones, which, by the way, Joshua did. And so notice that it's not about the character of these men, whether Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or Joseph. It's about the faithfulness of God. And at the end of their lives, every one of them at the end of their lives, God had worked in them such that they had come to believe despite themselves very often the promises of God and thus obeyed what God instructed. God's love, friends, allows us to participate in his plan. 
They are participants in his plan, but it's his plan, not theirs. It's dependent on him, not them. And he allows us to participate in his grand plan as well. In your New Testament, Paul writes, Understand that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. That would be us. And announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. They were God's chosen nation through whom he's going to accomplish his ultimate plan. And now we, like Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, and all those who have come after, we now stand in the line of those who are allowed to participate in the work that God is doing. Do you understand that, friends? You get to participate in what God's doing. You've been counted in. Because you're great? No. Because God, a great and a good God, has allowed you to participate as he did with them. And so Peter says this of us, as you come to him, the living stone rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you, like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Israel, God's chosen nation, populated by the the Jewish people. Now we have the Gentiles. Brought into this plan. You're part of that. You're doing the kinds of stuff that they were doing. And Peter goes on to say. You're a chosen people. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people belonging to God. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness. Into his wonderful light. Once you Gentiles. Were not a people. But now you are the people of God. God's love, friends, allows us to participate in his plan. They understood that they were part of something that would outlive them. And we are part of a mission that God is carrying forward in this age that the Bible calls the age of the church. And God is now executing his plan, not through a physical nation, made up of a particular race of people, but through this thing called the church into which you have been brought by the love of God. God will one day again carry out his plan through the Jewish people, the Bible tells us. Because God always fulfills his promises and some of what he promised to Abraham has still not happened, the land in particular. But in the meantime, God has Jew and Gentile in the church and you stand in the line of what he's doing. Now, I'm going to get off of that, but the reason I beat on it is because I hope I never get over the wonder of the fact that God would allow me to be a participant in what he's accomplishing in his world. Are you kidding me? I get to get up every morning and say, right now, today counts forever. Because I'm a participant in that plan. Not because of me, because he allowed me. And you would agree, would you not, that he doesn't need you or me? 
And he didn't need Abraham. And he didn't need Isaac or Jacob or Joseph or anybody else. We, like they, are nothing special. And we, like they, are not worthy. And that's why Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 reminds us. Not many of you were mighty or noble or learned or wise when you were called. But God has called the lowly things. The things which are not. And the unwise to confound the wise. You remember all of that. That's that's an unflattering description of you and me. God's love allows us to participate in his plan. Let me take that one step further. God loved us long before we ever realized it. How far back does God's love extend for you and for me? According to the Bible, it would be back into eternity. That before God created the world, he had determined that he was going to have a people of his very own. From before the foundation of the world, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. God's love, friends, allows you and me to participate in his plan. Secondly, it's God's sovereignty that guarantees the fulfillment of that plan. Think about the story of, of Joseph. And think about how God, with a mighty hand, moved on the affairs of men so that that story turned out exactly as God had intended. And the truth of the matter is, Joseph had no earthly idea how God was going to work in that situation, did he? After his brothers have, have left him for dead, he has every reason to believe he's going to be dead. And yet God works out what we can't see in ways that we absolutely cannot see. Does he not? And so what situation do you have going on right now? In which you have said, I don't see any way that God can work this out. And it may well be the case that we can't see anyway. Joseph couldn't. But I'm here to tell you, I am here to tell you. There is no situation, there is no situation that God cannot work out. A sovereign God ensures, guarantees that his plan for us will be fulfilled precisely as he desires. And so the fullness of our lives and all that happens, the good and the bad and the ugly, everything that's happening in your life, is in the hands of a God who has made promises that he allows you to participate in. And he is using all of those things, every last one of them, to advance his plan and your participation in it. That's why the Bible tells us, preciously, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who've been called according to his purpose. King James translates that that verse, and we know that all things work together for good. Some of you have memorized it that way, as did I. All things work together for good. But this is actually the way it should be translated. Because, see, things don't just work by themselves. God works things. An active 
And sovereign God is at work in the things of your life, just as he was in the life of Joseph. So what God has allowed to come into your life and my life, friends, even if sinful, he can use. I mean, did he use Isaac? Was Isaac sinful? Was Jacob sinful? I'm sinful. You're sinful. This is why you cannot continue to dwell on the past. You cannot continue to say, I can't move forward because of the past. And as a matter of fact, when we continue to dwell on the sin of the past, we are sinning in the present by refusing to believe God's promise of burying that sin in the past and using us despite ourselves, despite our own sin. God used these men and he uses you. God's sovereignty, not your goodness, guarantees the fulfillment of his plan. And so we don't wallow in the past, but we thank God for his awesome control of all things, even incorporating into that grand plan somehow that I do not understand my own failures and my own weaknesses and my own inadequacies. God's love lets you participate in his plan. And God's sovereignty is what guarantees the fulfillment of that plan. Thirdly, God's grace ensures that we benefit from that plan. God has called us to participate in what he's doing. And he overrules our sin and our failure, and thereby he guarantees that his plan for his people will be fulfilled. Sometimes it seems in spite of us. And with all of that, get this, God will reward us for our feeble participation in his grand plan. God singled out these guys as patriarchs. They get to be memorialized in the pages of scripture, Hebrews 11. You know, there aren't many, those are reserved seats, there aren't many of them. And these guys get a seat. They get a plaque. Those guys. And there are examples. They are in faith's hall of fame despite that they failed miserably. And the Bible tells us that God is going to reward our feeble faithfulness despite us someday as well. Amazing. Paul wrote this marvelous passage in your New Testament, 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, a long chapter, 58 verses. For 57 of those 58 verses, it's all about one subject. The fact that we serve a Lord who is alive. He is risen. And then you come to that final verse, verse 58. And Paul says, therefore. That first word is there, therefore. Because of all that I've said in these 57 verses, because Jesus is alive, because the resurrection of Christ is central to the good news of the gospel, because this thing is absolutely true, therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. And let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to this work that he's allowing you to participate in. But why should you give yourself fully? Here's why. Because you know something. You know that your labor for the Lord is not in vain. 
that everything that we are doing for the Lord Jesus Christ in his cause, he will graciously one day allow us to benefit from. I don't even deserve to be part of the plan. And yet he not only lets me be part of the plan, he lets me serve in it, and then he rewards me for my feeble, sinful, inadequate service. And yet that's what God tells us. You know that your labor, Jacob's labor, such as it was, and Isaac's labor, and Joseph's labor, were not in vain. If you believe, friends, if you have faith in all of that, that our glorious future is indeed certain, that we do play an integral part in his plan for that future, that it is indeed a privilege that will affect how you behave in the present. We're all going to stand, the Bible tells us, before the judgment seat of Christ. And God, who is just, will reward us for the good that we have done. But it also tells us, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10, that we will be judged, evaluated, both for the good and the bad, done while in the body. I just tell you, friends, these few days that we have count for eternity. And God will withhold the judgment until the end of the age. The judgment seat does not happen as soon as you die. It's at the end of the age. You know why? Because the fruit of your labor is not completely known until it's completely played out. And if that is good labor, that's a marvelous thing to contemplate. Every now and then, my wife and I, we've been at this now in our adult lives for nearly 30 years, together for 25. And so we've been doing this enough times to have ministered in people's lives and people that have moved on and we lost track of. And Every now and then, we'll receive a note from somebody, a phone call from somebody out of the past, and they'll say, do you remember me? And do you remember that you taught me? Do you remember that you counseled me? Do you remember in some way you tried to help me? Well, this is what the Lord did with that. What a marvelous thing. And we rejoice because in some small measure we were allowed by God to see results now. But guess what? Most of the time we don't see the results now, do we? They didn't. We normally don't either. And so, parent who's laboring with your children. And you say, I'm very, I don't know where it's going. I don't know what the Lord's going to do with that. The story is not done. God is still at work. God is working in every act of faithfulness, every measly act of faithfulness that we do. Every now and then he gives us a glimpse into the results. Most of the time we soldier on in faith, seeing what is unseen, because we believe God is going to take what we do and ultimately use it for good. I mentioned Pastor Tom, or I mentioned a pastor, I didn't mention his name at the beginning of our message. That pastor about whom that book was written 
Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor is Pastor Tom Carson. And he had a chance to see some fruit from his labor. Because as he was older, a younger man, and by Tom's own admission, a more gifted man, came and built on the foundation that he had laid. And many came to Christ. But it was built on the foundation that this faithful man had laid. But further, his last name is Carson. And his son is Don Carson. Perhaps Don Carson is the preeminent evangelical New Testament scholar in the world, is his son. He's written dozens of books and commentaries. They've been of immense help to pastors all over the world, myself included. Most of us, and perhaps you know him by his initials, D.A. Carson. D.A. Carson wrote the biography of his dad, Memoir of an Ordinary Pastor. You see, friends, we can't always see what our influence will be, and we certainly don't know at the time that we're serving and before the results are in. But one reviewer said this of this biography of this ordinary pastor, Tom Carson. He said, I never met him, but I know him. He's the man who can be found in countless little towns and hamlets across the country. No, across the world. Who labors faithfully for the Lord in an unspectacular but steady fashion. And unlike many of us self-promoters, he's not in ministry to make a name for himself, but to glorify his God. This is what Tom Carson did for most of his life. And this is what many who are just like him do. Before, that group, Ordinary Pastors, was overlooked. Now they have a book. And so indeed, this reviewer says, Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor is not only Tom's biography, it's the biography of countless men just like him, whose names will, we will know only in the age to come. This man's faithfulness produced fruit. Much of it that he could not see. He's gone to be with the Lord. Friends, may the Lord find us faithful. Not perfect. Not even good many times. But may He find us faithful. Faith is being certain, absolutely certain, of what I cannot see. And so as we end, I ask you, are you convinced that it's a privilege to serve God? Even if you don't see results now. Are you convinced that God is sovereignly at work in your life, though it may not be clear just how, and despite your sins and your failings and your inadequacies? Are you convinced that God can balance the books in the end, and He will, and show you the success of your quiet faithfulness, and that He will even, in His grace, reward you for it? Here's a moniker to live by, and we're done. Faithfulness is success. Period. Faithfulness is, at all times, no matter the results, no matter what's going on, faithfulness in the eyes of God is success. May the Lord find us faithful. Now, the only way this happens that you have this marvelous privilege of being involved in the mighty plan of God and being in the great line of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and what he's doing in his world is if you're connected to the seed of Abraham. And that seed 
is the Lord Jesus. Paul tells us in the book of Galatians. And how do I connect myself with him? I recognize that I need him. I'm a sinner. That he paid the penalty I could not pay for my sin. And I want to get in this line of following him and participating actively and joyfully and voluntarily in this plan that he's executing in his world. So I repent. I say, Lord, I'm going to follow you now, not go my own way. And receive Jesus Christ into your life. You do that when we bow. You pray in your own words from your heart to God, acknowledging your need. Him is the only way to meet that need of covering your sin and telling him you want to follow him. Ask him to forgive you. Tell him you want to follow him. He promises, promises to change your life. Let's bow. Our Father, we thank you for this marvelous passage of Scripture that tells us that in the end, these men got it. It took lives of difficulty and sin and travail weakness. And we see that all laid out in the pages of Holy Scripture. And it gives me, as a weak and sinful man, hope that I too can be used. That I can be used not because of me and because I'm good, but because of you and because of your goodness to me. And likewise, my brothers and sisters here, Lord, I pray that they'll be encouraged That God uses the weak and the frail and even the sinful as part of his grand plan. And that we'll thank you that you allow us to do this. You don't need us. You allow us to do this. Lord, thank you that in your grace, you sometimes allow us to see the results. But in the meantime, grant us the eyes of faith that believe with absolute certainty what we cannot see. Help us to be a people and a church of whom it can be said because it is true. Faithfulness is success. We pray that we'll honor the Lord Jesus Christ thereby with our lives and in our church. We pray in his name. Amen.